we do serve a good and great God. One of those things um, that he's been extremely gracious to is that, uh, as many of you know, if you're new, uh, we're celebrating 40 years this year as a church. Very cool, very exciting, and one of those ways we've been um, celebrating is inviting the ministers to come speak. So next week, Roger and Jackie will be here to, to share um, next week. I wanted you to save um, July 31st is um, a big celebration for that. So um, it's George's Famous Chicken and anything you all bring, but more details about that later. Um, but we just want to celebrate and what God has done and doing here um, uh, that day as well. So um, just, a, just a reminder about those things. Mark chapter 6, we made it back. So if you have your Bibles, your apps, whatever you need to do, I need you to follow along. Mark chapter 6, this morning's message is the power or the preparation for the power of unbelief. Preparation uh, in the power of unbelief. I don't think, um, well, every time you get to Scripture, it all seems to be relevant. But this seems to be um, extremely relevant uh, in our present culture. So with the things that are happening in our culture, specifically with all the hoopla and the uproar of Roe versus Wade being overturned and tossed back to the states, this seemed appropriate. And so if you have your Bibles, Mark chapter 6, 1 through 6 is where we are. When Jesus went away from there, he came to his hometown and the disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogues. And many who had heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brothers James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and, not his, and not, are, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you on this day, setting aside uh, this first day of the week like we see in Scripture, to come before you, to come together, to fellowship, to come around your table, to come around your word, to sing praises to your name, to glorify you, that that is our testimony to a lost and dying world. And so I just ask you to give us the wisdom and discernment this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When you look at these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read Jesus' life story of his earthly ministry, nowhere do you find that he was amazed or astonished or that he marveled, save two places. This is one of them. The other one is Luke 7, where Jesus marvels at the centurion's great faith, a Gentile Roman. The only time he marvels is in the Jewish people that should have known in their unbelief, and then a Gentile, he's just astonished at his great faith. The people, all the crowds that have been leading up to this, that we've been, where we've been in Mark chapter 5, they um, were amazed at Jesus' teaching all throughout those Gospels, the response to who Jesus is, what he's doing. That is their response. The supernatural uh, miracles, uh, like the end of Mark 5 where we left off, uh, the demonic man was, was out of his mind. And, and everybody that saw him, every, everywhere he went after Jesus said, you're not coming with me, go and tell your family, your friends, were amazed, astonished. But for Jesus, these two acts, those two contrasts of belief and unbelief, 
just make him say, wow. Only two times. Those who believe when it's not expected that they would, and to those who disbelieve when they have every reason that they should. And those are the two categories. As powerful as faith, believe this reveals to, or what it should and gain our understanding is that as powerful as faith is, faith that moves mountains, faith in Jesus Christ, unbelief is powerful as well. But it's vitally important to know that unbelief will never overtake faith that you have, the faith in Christ. Just because it exists doesn't mean one is more powerful than the other, other than faith in Jesus Christ. It's also, I think, important to point out that we're not just sitting around again waiting to find out which expression of faith or lack of faith is going to win. We already know who's more powerful. Scripture reveals that to us. Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail, Matthew 16. So this, again, it's not an open question of which one is more powerful, uh, unbelief is just as powerful. No, it's not, but it's just powerful. And we need to kind of deal with that some. You notice this, you should, right from the beginning in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Adam and Eve, God created, then he moved to 3. Adam and Eve who didn't believe in God in that, in that moment and plunged all of humanity into the curse of sin, judgment, and hell. The people of Noah's day will be another good example of who just did not believe. Israel is another good example. All throughout their history, they come out of Egypt. They see these amazing things that God has done. First generation to see these things. And yet all through their history, there is belief and unbelief, and it waxes and wanes. All through the wilderness, becoming a divided kingdom. Jesus' own family that we saw in Mark chapter 5. Even Judas, who was with him this whole time. All unbelief in God's creation is revealed in his revealed scripture. Jesus Christ, being the Son of God, as Mark describes this and begins his, his uh, gospel, reveals the person of Jesus Christ. All of that unbelief is idolatry. It is self-sovereignty. It creates its own God. In whatever form it takes, Psalms 115 says this, Their idols are the works of men's hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. Those that make them make them like themselves, so is everyone who trusts in them, meaning the idol. And we have this propensity to create these things in our unbelief. The ultimate unbelief in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is what launches people into eternal hell. Unbelief is what lights the fuse, if you will, of God's divine holy wrath, which is already lit, according to John. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged, but he who does not believe is judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. 2 Thessalonians 2 gives warning to the horrific consequences of that unbelief. You see it in Romans 11 when Paul describes a history and reviews Israel's unbelief from that process. You go to Revelations 21 and it makes it clear that no believing, unbelieving person will ever enter into heaven. It's a powerful, powerful issue. 
So just a real quick review of Mark's where we've been. Mark began his gospel with this very claim that Jesus is the Son of God. He's, he was the coming one, the fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, through the prophecies by John the Baptist. He was tempted. He overcame. Jesus begins then to go out in ministry. He explains the kingdom. He explains the good news, what that is to the people. He preaches. He teaches. He calls his disciples. More preaching, more teaching. He sets aside specifically 12 men to be tasked for this uh, gospel message when he is gone. And so he is in this training process. Then there's more preaching, there's more teaching, there's more healing, and we just repeat that process up until chapter 6. Throw in a few victories over demons, the dangers of being tossed around at sea, um, certain death, Jairus' daughter, where we ended in Mark chapter 5. And after all of that, you would think, and all the crowds seeing all these things, that the response would be something just different. But amazingly, most still don't believe. And Jesus asked this very specific question of his disciples in Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? Do you believe? Most thought he was just another prophet. Well, you're like Elijah and John the Baptist, Jeremiah, the prophets of old. That's, that's what people are saying. Most, as you see in John chapter 6, were just along for all the miracles. Follow Jesus and something cool is going to happen. We're going to remember this the rest of our lives. They just wanted the dog and pony show that he was going to roll out. It wasn't about him and who he was. It was the benefits that was at issue. The superficial people that Jesus taught of the parables of the soils falling on rocks and thorns. That's the issue. Most went away that, that day that Jesus asked. And he finally gets to the point where he's asking his disciples, are you guys going to go too? Everybody else is leaving because... I'm shutting this thing off. Why? Well, part of me believes that believing in Jesus Christ is just harder than unbelief. It's the road less traveled. It's just easier to do what you want to do and how you want to do it and frame your reality the way you want to frame it. It's just easier to do that. Coming to the small gate, coming to the narrow way, just in those words that we use in those definitions, has some kind of restrictive nature to it. At least that's what we think. It's not all what you used to do. It doesn't really live up to your expectations. The reason that is, is because God's not going to play nice with your sin. That's really why. He doesn't just dress up evil. He doesn't just skirt around the edges of our lives to make us moral, or to make us whatever that is. He completely just eliminates all of that. He transforms you. You are a new creation. The old is died. That's the concept. That's the, that's the picture we get in belief. God is going to completely create this upheaval in your life, so much so that Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Isaiah 65, 17, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not even be remembered. That's an upheaval, isn't it? That's a complete transformation of what was known, what was, what was thought of, and it's gone. That's the kind of work that he's doing. John's revelation. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. If that's coming, then the people that are going to be living there have to be fitted differently. And that's what the gospel does. 
In order to see those glories, you have to be made new. To have the mind of Christ, which when you do, immediately puts you at odds to the world. You are now hostile to what is going on in culture, what is going on in the world. Remember, nobody is neutral, and you as a Christian shouldn't be either. So much so that in Jesus' day, the leaders were now becoming openly hostile to who he was and what he was doing. By now, there's, there, there's these rumbles of this plotting in their minds. How do we get rid of this man? The crowds are still hanging in there. They're still getting the benefits of what Jesus is doing. So they're still kind of out there. And there's too many of them for the leaders just to come open with what they're actually trying to accomplish. And Jesus makes one more trip to his hometown. And this, by the way, will be his last trip. He never returns after this. Why? In part because of their unbelief. Scripture here says he was not accepted in his home. Boy comes back and makes... There were no, you know, hometown carpenter boy comes back and makes good and, and all of that as he's traveling around for about, uh, Mark 6 is at least a year, maybe a year and a half, half of his ministry already. If you remember back in Mark chapter 3, uh, 20 in there, remember his family came to him as he's healing. They thought he was out of his mind, if you remember. They thought he was nuts in what he was doing. And so we see as the custom was, Jesus would go to the synagogue to preach. He read from Isaiah the first time he was there. And he makes this declaration of who he was. In short, I'll just paraphrase what he read in Isaiah. I've come to set the captives free, to make the blind to be able to see. And on he rolls the scroll back up, he sits back down, and he makes this declaration. Upon this reading, the, the, the scripture has been fulfilled. He's making sure they understand that Isaiah prophesied this, and you are all hearing this, this very moment this prophecy has been fulfilled. And that would have immediately set them off, at least the leaders. But what do the people do? Prove it. Show us more. Give us more signs. Give us more because I'm not sure yet after all the things he's been doing. And Jesus basically says, yeah, no thanks. No more miracles for you. I am the Messiah. I'm here to preach the kingdom of God to the poor, the blind, the oppressed, those being imprisoned. In other words, those who are dead in your sin and you don't see it in your unbelief. You don't see that aspect of your life in your unbelief, that you are poor, that you are oppressed. And you are just like your forefathers who killed the prophets. Those my father sent to you out of his great love for you, and you rejected them. And so he reminds them of Elijah, who went to a, a, gentle, a Gentile widow, a Baal worshiper probably, who says, bring me your, your, your urns and fill them up, and as long as I'm with you, you, won't, you and your son will be fine. A Gentile. He reminds them about Elisha who healed Naaman, a Syrian, of his leprosy. He didn't do it to any Israelite. And Jesus is pressing the point because of your unbelief. I sent the prophets to somebody else. Well, you can imagine the response, and you can read that for yourself. It totally hacked him off. They drove him to the city. They pushed him out of the synagogue, and they wanted to chuck him off the cliff. And Scripture says they, Jesus just walked past them. And so now he's back. That underlying 
perception of Jesus when he comes home. Nothing has changed. He hasn't changed their mind. None of the stories that they've heard of where he's been has changed. Which is interesting to me because what I believe it says to us as humans and our humanity is the total complete depravity of our sin when we come face to face with the truth. Isn't that what Pilate asked? That was the very question he asked at Jesus' trial, wasn't it? What is truth? I think that was a very strong, deliberate, probing question, at least in the political context of where Pilate was. I don't think politics have changed much at all since then. So what is it about unbelief? What is it about unbelief that makes the Son of God go, oh, wow, that's amazing that that the Son of God would marvel at such a thing? What does it do? What does it lead to? For that, you begin in verse 6. So if you look in verse 6, that's where all this culminates. Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. That word just means wonder, amazement. The reaction of whether it's favorable or unfavorable or not depends on the context. And here the context is unbelief. This is not favorable. This is not a good amazement. It's a judgment. It's the word used in Revelation 13. The whole earth marveled and followed after the beast. It's the same word. Same concept. Or if you go to the Old Testament, Moses. He sees the burning bush. It's the same concept. He marveled when he was amazed by what he saw. So let me give you a couple, uh, I don't know, four principles maybe of what unbelief does. Here's the first one. Unbelief argues against the truth. This is what unbelief does. Why this is relevant? Because where you live, work, and play tomorrow, all the conversations you're going to have about abortion, about overturning all that hoopla, all the things that, we happen, that are happening in culture, that's why this is so relevant to me. Again, nothing is more telling than Pilate's question. Pilate knew Jesus was telling the truth. He knew he was innocent. He had all the evidence he needed to release him. He doesn't need more information. He doesn't want more information. So how does it argue? How does unbelief argue against the truth? It looks for an escape mechanism. It deflects. And this is what I believe is at the very heart of unbelief. It will go everywhere and anywhere but reality. It'll go everywhere and anywhere to what is so blatantly obvious when it's all just laid out before you. It tries to look somewhere else. It tries to get you to look somewhere else by asking or deflecting questions that people already know the answer to, and that's what you get in verse 2. He began to teach in the synagogues. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where? Where did this man get these things? In other words, his teaching. What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Well, how do you think? Right? (laughs) Those are irrelevant questions to say, hey, look over here. No one ever had done the miracles Jesus did. Moses even told the people that, hey, remember... Someone's going to come looking like me. Look for him. And when he shows up, they don't understand. So Jesus did the miracles of a prophet, but he went further to declare himself God by forgiving sins. Moses never did that. He specifically told them where, who he was, where he came from, when he read Isaiah that day in the synagogue, if, declaring that it has been fulfilled. And the question that follows, 
If that's the case, then which part of this do you not understand? What are you, what are you not understanding? John 5, 36 says this, The works of the Father that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The very things, all these things you're astonished at, declare that God sent me. I am from Him. John 8, 45. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Isn't that odd? <laughs> I'm telling you the truth, but you don't believe. I just think that's a very odd conversation. Jesus, however, gives the reason in verse 47 in John 8. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. And he goes on. The reason then why you don't hear them is because you're not of God. He doesn't leave it hanging out there. He explicitly goes after them. Jesus pleads with the people in John chapter 10, if I am not doing the works of my Father, don't believe, then don't believe me. That, that seems reasonable, doesn't it? If these aren't the works of the Father, then don't believe me. Basically, I'm lying, so don't believe a liar. Don't believe anything I say. But he continues, but if I do them, even though you don't believe, believe in the works that I'm doing. If you can't believe in me, if I offend you so much or, or the things I'm saying are too harsh, at least try to get past that and see actually what's being done. And the whole point is that you may know and understand the Father is in me and I am in the Father. That's a declaration of his deity. That's a declaration that he truly is God. He truly is man. Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus is a good, a good applica uh, application because no amount of evidence mattered. When you read that, send someone back. My brothers are going to listen. This is torment. This is awful. This is no one. I don't want to send someone back. And Jesus makes this amazing statement even if someone would rise from the dead, they won't believe. That's astonishing. John finishes that part of his gospel in, in chapter 20. That Jesus, you know, he did so many more things that we can't write them down. I mean, there'd be volumes of books. But all the things that are written down for you, for me, is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Again, that's an amazing statement. For all it takes is the Word of God for you to come to terms and understand what that means. That's John's specific for conclusion to anyone who would come to Christ understands the Word of God. Remember, when you, when you read this, when you process what's going on, very few people in all of history actually saw, heard, walked with Jesus Christ. The bulk of humanity, the bulk of the Christian brothers and sisters that you have, that you'll see in heaven one day, never saw anything that's how powerful the Word of God is meant to be in your life. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It, that's what it does. That's what the Holy Spirit is working in you. The point being, you don't need any more miracles. You don't need anything more else to be said. You don't need anything else. You have everything you need to believe, and they rejected it. His hometown, the Jewish leaders, 
never denied the miracles Jesus did. That was impossible to do. But in their self-righteousness, in their self-sovereignty, the hardness of their hearts, they have to silence the truth. What could really be behind that line of questioning maybe is that, well, yeah, we know this Jesus. He was a carpenter's son, right? He didn't go to the prestigious schools to be a prophet, to be a scribe, to be a ruler, to be a pharisee. He didn't go you know, to the highfalutin schools to do that. Paul did, if you remember. That's how he describes himself. I did all of that. And he's willing to throw all of that on the dung heap of history. Jesus is an outlier. And he's not going to toe the line of that political elite. Which means he can't be controlled. Therefore, if you can't win the argument, here's a second one. Unbelief despises the character of the messenger. Verse 3. It despises his character. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? So in our American minds, we go, well, well, yeah, he's a carpenter. We know that. What's the problem? It's meant to be derogatory. It's slanderous. It's asking lead-in questions, doubt-filled questions that call into question the character of the messenger. See, if you can't win the argument against the truth, meaning you can't dispute the miracles Jesus did, you can't argue with his teaching, they tried to debate him and they got completely roasted. They lost every time. This guy is a carpenter. Again, he's not a leader. He's not a Pharisee. He's just an average guy that we know. We saw him grow up. He's not the Messiah. Matthew says in his account, is not this the carpenter's son? We, we know Joseph. We knew him. Presumably he has passed away by now. To push the point even further, the son of Mary? Again, we, well, yeah, we know that. We Americanize that and process that in our American mind. Now, whether Joseph had died or not, but out of respect, you would have said the son of Joseph. I mean, all you have to do is refer to the genealogies of Scripture in the Old Testament to see that. But in the context of unbelief, this is quite possible to assume that this was a dig some 30 years later of all the stories that would have suggested that Jesus was illegitimate. That still would have been circulated. In fact, if you go to John chapter 8, Jesus says one of his nice, warm, fuzzy sayings to the Jewish leaders that if you were of Abraham, you would do what he did, meaning you would respond in faith, you would believe. To which they respond, we were not born out of sexual immorality. The implication is, but you were, and we know. You can't be the Messiah. And Jesus finishes that little discourse with, you are just like your father, the devil. (laughs) That'll win him over. See, once again, all this questioning is deflecting, redirecting, and avoiding the real issue of who Jesus is. That's what is at issue. That's the truth. And unbelief just tries to get around it, over it, under it, in in any fashion it can, the messenger. It'll attack The messenger. Here's the third one, verse 3. They took offense at him. If you can't assassinate someone's character in unbelief, then you just go after the person. 
the term offensive is scandalizo, just where we get the word scandal is what it means. They were scandalized. And so this is a, a, a direct frontal attack, if you will, an ad hominem attack of attack the messenger. Who are you, dear Christian? Do you think you own and understand the truth? Who do you think you are? As a matter of fact, yes. Yes, I do have the corner on the truth. And the corner is Jesus Christ. (laughs) See, that claim that He is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, was so far beyond their comprehension. So far what they had been taught and ingrained, warned against. And in part, I kind of understand and feel for them because, hey, we tried this and now we're, now we're going off into captivity because we had these other gods. So if he's not it, I don't want to do that again. Matthew 11, Jesus offers a blessing to those who would not be scandalized by him. Isaiah prophesied of that, that he will become a sanctuary. How does Jesus become a sanctuary? By believing that he is the Son of God. And Isaiah goes on in chapter 8, verse 14, to those who will not believe, a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling, to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it, they shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. That's unbelief. What's the point of all this? The point of all this is that Jesus is bringing his disciples here because he knows what it's going to be like, it, like for them when he's gone. So he brings them back to his hometown, I believe, for this very experience that if, if Jesus, the King of Kings, our teacher, our follower is running into the same thing, then we should be prepared. And all this preparation is for that. Because in a few chapters, he's going to be sending them out. They're going to be on their short-term mission. They're going to be experienced in, in what this looks like. He's going to send them out. They're going to come back. They need to be prepared. And I guess let me pause at this point to relate to those, especially if you have children still at home. Are you preparing them? Are you preparing them for what they're facing in school presently? Or specifically when they go to university and what they will get hammered on, especially if they're a devout Christian? Are you being deliberate in what they will hear, see, whether it's university or whether they go off to work? Are you giving them answers? Are you having those conversations with them? That's what Jesus is doing, giving them the wisdom they need to combat the lies that they will certainly be exposed to. And as a parent, do you apply Deuteronomy 6? Are you training them when they wake up, when they go to bed, when they're at home, when they're with you here and there, going here and there. And the key in that respect is teaching them diligently, but specifically teaching them what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Emotions, will and mind, and obedience. Actions, in other words. And that's what Jesus is doing here to his disciples. It's a grand object lesson, if you will, because he knows the world hates him, John 15. And he's going to send them out, sheep into wolves, right? That always makes me go, really? You told them that? (laughs) 
Who wants to sign up for that? This is going to be great, fellas. You're sheep, they're wolves, now go get them. <laughs> they're thinking, wait a minute, that's backwards. That's not how this works. I don't want to do that. I, didn't, I don't want to sign up for that. But that's what you do. He goes on to tell them you're going to be scourged in the synagogues. Well, it gets even better, right? They're going to actually beat you, kick you out for my name's sake. You'll be arrested. You'll be taken before political leaders and powers because of me. And you're going to testify them and go to the Gentile nations. See, this is the plan to have the gospel preached to all the known world so fast. That's God's plan. This is how the word gets out. And by the way, it'll be brother against brother, father against son, children against parrots. It's raining cats and dogs now. <laughs> That's what unbelief does. That's how hard it is. It's hard, isn't it, being a Christian? It can be. To follow, to be faithful. It takes courage to have those convictions, the fortitude, the endurance, the will to never give in, to never give up and never quit. To say something when you could easily let it slide at work. To have the, as we've talked about before, to have the theology that gets you fired. That's where the world's moving in. Always has. It's not new. Especially in a small town where everybody knows your name. So they had decided the carpenter that they knew, that they saw grow up down the street, had lost his mind, even his own family. So unbelief argues against the truth. Unbelief despises the character of the messenger. Unbelief attacks the messenger. And finally, unbelief rejects the supernatural. Verse 5. He could do no mighty works there except... He laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Rejecting the supernatural cuts you off from the power of who God is. You become, therefore, then self-sovereign. You become the captain of your own soul. And in the process, you become the servant of Satan. This is not an issue, as I used to think it is. Well, why couldn't he do things? I mean, he's God after all, right? Why can't he do something? It's not that. Once again, unbelief redirects with such questions. Of course, God's not limited in His power. He's not limited by you or me in any way. So that's not the issue. But what was the issue? What's the purpose and function of all the miracles? What was, why was Jesus putting His power on display? What was it for? The whole point of this was to believe the truth. Now, if you're not going to believe, I don't need to turn the spigot on. That's the point. It's a judgment. You have shut yourself off from the very thing that can save you. To make Jesus, or to make his disciples understand this, I think that's why that's there. He did a few miracles. It's not that all of a sudden my belief controls God or my unbelief does something to him or whatever. He is outside of me. He doesn't need me. I offer nothing to him. Because I will, may reject him in my unbelief does not dissuade him in any way. And so Jesus does a few miracles. 
this aspect of unbelief is by far the basis of most gospel conversations, I think, that God does not exist. Those are the ones you're going to have. That's, the, that's the, this Darwinian worldview, if you will. All there is is the natural. There is no supernatural, and you can't prove it. You can't put it in a test tube. You, you can't show me. You can't, you can't, you can't, you know, all of that. And whatever you think supernatural is, God, whatever you want to call it in your own mind, it just doesn't exist. Which is always an interesting question in those conversations because I want to sit there and go, well, wait a minute. How do you know? <laughs> How do you know that? Right? I mean, consider, you know, the standard in which you are using to, to discern that, to get to that point. How do you know what happens when you die? How do you know those things? That's typically the response to some really smart people. And they are smart. There's some amazingly smart people in this world. No doubt they have extraordinary mental uh, astuteness. And if that's the case, and if that's what you're saying, then, then I should be worshiping you. Uh, you're the one I should be worshiping, because if there is no supernatural and you have all this figured out, then, then where, where does this get directed? Consider the depth of evil, the depravity of unbelief, then. Jesus, the God-man, can heal any disease, bring the dead to life, calms the storms, destroys pigs by, or demons via pigs, as we have seen, creates meals for thousands of people, a man who embodies compassion and love and joy, who gives life, and who shows you how to have life and more abundantly, yet you don't believe him. And not only that, you now want to kill him. That's the depth and depravity and evil of unbelief and where it leads. By denying God and unbelief, you shut him out. You will, in your foolishness, be left to yourself to be your own God. Something you won't be able to handle. Something you won't be able to come to terms with in this life. And it shows up in a variety of destructive behaviors and attitudes. Being the God of your own life, being self-sovereign, is basically just like what the Pharisees were doing. You are of the Father, you're devil, and it's a road that leads to hell. That's what denying the supernatural does. It destines you on the road to hell. That's the nature and power of unbelief. And as a church, as Christian people, as families, you and I better be prepared to respond with the gospel. Hebrews 11.6, without faith it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the reward of those who diligently seek him. I believe we are seeing all these pr principles of unbelief presently, specifically, to those who are hell-bent on protecting abortion and their arguments. I did a little research and just listening and reading about all the screaming and how they hate Christians and Christianity and all the things that are going on because I detest that and want to see life. It's interesting to me that it's... You never hear that it's about Christian... or about any other religion, just Christians, just Christianity. 
it's never an affront to, to Islam and Muslims. It's never an affront to, to Buddhists. Anyway, it's just never like that. It's not Scientology. It's just always comes back to the Christian. At least that's what I heard and read this week in their arguments. Abortion is health care. For whom? Attacking the messenger. Protesting, in other words, the Supreme Court at their homes. From a CNN reporter asking the Mississippi governor about abortion restrictions and what those might be when a baby, he didn't use baby, that's fetus is what he used, who has a serious or fatal abnormalities. Quote, is the state of Mississippi going to force those girls and women, apparently we know what they are now, who have this tragedy inside them, carrying a child to full term? I was kind of dumbfounded by that word. Tragedy? Now, I understand what he meant, if there's some ailment or something going on with the baby. Aside from thinking that it's a baby, and even with known physical damage of some kind, is it really a tragedy? If that's the case, then I wouldn't have a daughter today. Because she had one. I hope you're praying along with me, and I know you are, that this will be overturned. But are you prepared? Unbelief is a powerful, powerful force. You may not like it. It doesn't matter. It's just the reality in which we live in, a fallen world. Don't don't expect someone who doesn't believe to act like someone who does. It's just all they know. The only thing that transforms a people, a family, a nation is the gospel. And if you look at that and hear all this and hear all the noise and everything that's going on and you go, what is going on? Why is this happening? And you're you're just, just at the end of yourself. It's all because of unbelief. You and I, as Christians who believe, do not respond that way. We trust in a God who is above it all who uses all of these things in his sovereign glory to bring judgment to a people, to bring judgment to a nation. And you and I have to be prepared with the gospel when those questions happen and come up where you live, work, and play. That's why we're here. That's what's happening. That's what's taking place. Unbelief argues against the truth. It despises the character of the messenger. It attacks the messenger. It rejects the supernatural In short, unbelief suppresses the truth and destines you to hell. What's the response? Repent. Believe in Jesus Christ. Become a believer by God's grace. And be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks of the hope that is in you, Peter says. Do you know the hope? I believe you do. I believe God has us right where he wants us in all the stuff that's going on but it's going to take faithful believers to overcome, to be brave enough to stand up and speak the truth to a culture that's going to scream at you, is going to use all these principles against you. But that's what God has called us to do. Are you up for it? Jesus, thank you for the morning. Thank you for our time to share.
God, I thank you for this object lesson of what unbelief looks like and does, how it acts. God, I pray that you give us the courage in our belief and our faith that you would strengthen us, that you would give us the words to speak in those conversations that will certainly come, whether it's around our kitchen table, at family gatherings, at our workplace. God, help us to be the salt and light that you've called us to be. Let our belief shine as bright as the sun, regardless of the consequences, regardless of what unbelievers do or say. In Jesus' name, amen.